We're going to be taking a look at Mark chapter 11 today again, and uh, this time we'll go back to the passage I skipped last week, and uh, we're going to look at the triumphal entry. By the way, welcome those of you who came in while we were worshiping. Good to have you here, and uh, didn't get the chance to meet you, but afterwards, before you leave, um, uh, today's a special Sunday, so you're going to get to hang around if you like and join us for a meal, and then... Um, we're actually going to do the, the lineup today is I'm going to give you a brief devotion here and then we're actually going to transition right into our business meeting. Um, it won't be very business-like, it'll be more of a vision casting meeting and um, invite you all to stay for that. And then after that, as a reward for your diligence in sticking with us, you get to eat. Woo! <laughs> and we've all prepared that food so it comes from many different homes and it's all kinds of yummy stuff and you just don't know what you're going to get up there. So uh, excited about that. Somebody called it pot providence, not pot luck, right? Because we, we, we don't believe in luck and, and there's no pot anyway. But uh, it's, uh, it's a lame joke, I know, but it's funny every time, right? You've got to repeat it every time just for the sake of it. Today we're going to talk about the triumphal entry, Mark chapter 11. And, uh, and I want to highlight something that I just, I can't get away from. Every time I see this passage, I just, I see the same thing jump out at me. And I cannot read it without being stirred in my heart by what Jesus does in this passage. And I, I um, reading it again and again, I thought, well, let me, let, me, let me read a bunch of commentaries and try and find some unique way of presenting this uh, that the church hasn't heard before so I can, you know, be cutting edge. Uh, but I keep defaulting back to the same thing again and again. <laughs> well, it's the Word of God, right? Sharper than a two-edged sword, right? Thank you, Rita. Um, but uh, I decided that, after all, I, I think the message, even though you've heard me say it before, is worth saying again. Because it is a challenge, an, in, an invitation for us to see through a different lens. To see through a different lens. And... Um, Today we're going to talk about seeing through the lens of prophecy and uh, instead of the pragmatic lens with which we normally look. I, I'm a bit of a logistics guy. I like logistics. Uh, I like to plan. I like to prepare. I like to over-prepare. I always have too much going on. And, uh, but, but just in case, you know, contingencies, in case something goes wrong. I'm just a, you know what, if you're ever going to be stuck on a, on a deserted island, you want to be there with me. Because I will have had everything prepared in advance, and you'll get there, and we'll have stores for a year, and we'll have ways to make boats and fix boats, and we'll be even probably have some loom where you can make clothing and stuff. You know, you want to be on a deserted island with me. It's true, and uh, I love to prepare. But as it turns out, my love for preparation could be, it could be limiting. It could be limiting because... Those of you who have ever done any kind of any kind of wilderness hiking will know that the over preparer usually carries too much. Right? Usually carries too much. You're thinking too far ahead of all the contingencies and the things that co could go wrong, and most of them never go wrong. <laughs> Tell us the honest truth there, Tammy, would you? Uh, for those of you who are new to the church, we're a very casual church. So if people happen to interject while I'm speaking or perhaps answer rhetorical questions, it's par for the course at Living Hope Family Church. I do ask, I do ask for you all to be, um, yeah, I don't know, just cognizant of everybody else around you. But at the same time, at the same time, it is a casual environment for this reason. I, I just... I bristle against religiosity. 
because it's like a fig, a fig tree without figs. It's, it's leaves that cover up fruitlessness. And religiosity is just that, and I hate that. And I bristle against it, and so do most of you. And, um, and so while we want to be respectful and honoring to one another, and most especially to the Word of God, because this is God's, God's Word. It's, it's inerrant and infallible and just authoritative. Uh, God spoke it, and it's there for us to hold on to. We want to honor that, but at the same time, we want it to be real. It's got to touch your heart. If it doesn't touch your heart, what's the purpose, right? We've got to hear it, and then we've got to get out there and be able to do it. And so that's why we enjoy a casual setting. But uh, the pragmatism that, that plagues me um, because of my love for logistics can actually turn out to be a lot of burden to bear. And uh, we're learning a great deal as Tammy and I are preparing for our sabbatical, as you guys know, we're heading off to Spain in in May, May and June. We'll be gone for, for two whole months from you guys. Imagine that. And uh, you, you'll be just fine, by the way, because Jesus will not have left the building. <laughs> and he's left you in the capable hands of elders and Pastor Emilio and, uh, and a whole bunch of volunteers and people around you who love Jesus. And you're going to be just fine. While we're gone. But while we're preparing to be gone, those of you who don't know what we're going to do, it's kind of fun. We're going to be marching through Spain, 500 miles on foot. Um, we're going to be walking very casually and relaxing for 500 miles through Spain. No Napoleon march, right? <laughs> left, right, left, right. Uh, uh, the last time I did any kind of route marching, uh, serious route marching with a backpack was in the army, but uh, that's a long time ago. And that's probably where I learned about the logistics. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Like, we got to get there, honey. Come on, move it. <laughs> Pick up those feet. Well, part of the planning uh, is we're going to be two months out there uh, and uh, well, 40 days on this on this pilgrimage, and you carry everything with you. you. You just everything you need is in your backpack, and your backpack needs to weigh a maximum of 22 pounds. The whole thing, 22 pounds. Imagine now. And uh, so I'm I'm I've been having so much fun preparing the logistics. I've been buying up all kinds of ultralight everything. I mean, I, we got everything from ultralight. Ultralight shoes to ultralight underwear to ultralight uh, flashlights, ultralight water purifiers. I've got everything. I'm like, man, we are ready. We are ready for the zombie apocalypse right here. As it turns out, all my ultralight stuff actually does add up. And I think right now our packs are like 30 pounds each. And uh, I've got to shed eight pounds. <laughs> I've got to shed more than eight pounds because you know what's going to happen is halfway through that hike, I'm going to be carrying everything that she doesn't want to carry anymore, right? Here's the deal. Logistic mindset comes with a lot of burden. A lot of stuff you've got to carry. And when you're thinking about logistics, there's not a whole lot of room for spontaneity. But as it turns out, in the kingdom of God, Spontaneity is a very, very precious commodity. It's a very precious commodity. Now, before I read the text, I want to lay a little bit of a picture for you here. Jesus is the consummate logistics guy, wouldn't you say? 
I mean, I don't know about you, but it seems like it would be a lot of burden to keep a universe working. Doesn't the Bible say that he holds all things together by the word of his power? Right? God was the one who said, let there be light, and everything happened. Out of nothing. Ex nihilo. God brought the universe into existence out of nothing. And he holds it together on a molecular level, on an atomic, on a subatomic level. Richard, you're an engineer. You know this is complicated stuff. Jason, you're a scientist. You know this is complicated stuff. How do you keep ecosystems working? Right? But God holds it all together. Think about the logistics involved in feeding 8 billion people on the planet every single day. Think about it. It's not the farmers who keep us here. God bless the farmers. It's not the grocery store guys. God bless them. It's not the politicians who make sure that things are, well, maybe should make sure that things are <laughs> being run the way they should be run. We're very grateful for them, and we pray. We pray because the Lord has told us to pray for those in authority over us, right? So that's part of what we do. But we understand that it's the Lord who does all of this, God who provides all these things for us. So God clearly knows about logistics. He has developed this system which is able to regenerate itself and able to mul we're able to multiply. There have never been as many people on the planet as there are right now, and yet there's still, there's still actually enough space, and there's still enough food if we were to get it to everybody. There is enough. It's not God's fault for our wars and rumors of wars. That's not, that's not God's fault. That's us. We have to carry that one. But here's the deal. Jesus understands logistics. He holds it all together. So now, think about this. Here's Jesus, the Word made flesh. He is on mission. It's the chosen time, at the right time, Christ has come. He's been revealed. The one who was long promised has come. And it is his mission to redeem a lost world. This is his mission. How has he done it? Well, you know the story. He was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, placed in a manger. You know the Christmas story. Then you know that he was raised in Galilee after a short stint in Egypt. Out of Egypt I have brought my son, the Bible says. And Jesus was taken then into, into Nazareth, and there he was raised. This Nazarene. And then we know when he was 12 years old, he was full of the word of God because he was, he was basically duking it out with the religious leaders down in Jerusalem. Not in an ugly way, not in an arrogant way, but he was asking questions that had them quite perplexed or had them excited about this young man who's showing so much promise for the things of God. We know that he gave himself in faithfulness and honor to the Lord, not sinning once, for he was as we are in all ways, except without sin. And then we know that when he was roughly 30 years of age, somewhere around there, he began his ministry. He began his ministry because his mom put him up to it. She was the one who said at the wedding, hey, they've run out of wine, Jesus. Could you do something about it? And he turned to her and said, it's not my time yet, woman. <laughs> I think that was a different kind of tone on that woman right there. <laughs> I think it was more respectful, probably. 
But then she turned to the uh, the attendants and she said to them, whatever he tells you to do, just do that. And so he turned the water into wine and so began the glory, the glory, the, the, the glorification of the Father through Jesus Christ's life and his ministry started. And for some three years, maybe a bit more, we, we're not exactly sure. It's hard to make it out from the text. It's hard to make it out even from church history. But somewhere around three years or so, Jesus ministered. He ministered to the needs of people, but doing so, he was displaying the very heart of God. He came to show that religiosity was not the way to God, but faith and repentance was the way to God. That the true change of heart would come through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And he began to point us to the Father in ways we had not known before, tearing down things and building other things up. But he was very strategic. He did, he did everything on purpose. And then there came a turning point in the ministry when he went from being the guy who was training up his 12 disciples to be able to carry on this ministry, having finished that job, at least well enough to that to where they were ready, he then set his eyes on Jerusalem for his real purpose, and that was the cross. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute because from a from a statistical standpoint, it's just not really probable, not really possible that Jesus would die on a cross. I want you to think about this because it is profoundly convincing with regard to the, uh, the Bible story. Just, just the, the, the chances that he would die on a cross. First of all, why should Jesus die on a cross? Why, why a cross? Why shouldn't he be stoned, which was the, 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 the typical way for death for a, for a, a heretic or a, a blasphemer? or somebody that was, that was disobeying God or stepping out of their, their role and their place under the, the guidance of the Jewish leaders. The death would come by stoning. There were other ways of being put to death as well, but crucifixion was a Roman thing. Crucifixion was, was a, a very ugly and, and horrible form of death. It was, it was barbaric. So much so that it was considered a curse. You know, some people were, were hanged in old days. And maybe there was death by other methods we won't talk about because it's just, it's just awful. It's violent and cruel and this is not a space to be thinking about those things. But crucifixion was a Roman thing. And, uh, and, and it was definitely not Jewish. Why did Jesus need to be crucified? Well, interestingly enough, there was a prophetic word spoken about him a thousand years before he came. And, and I don't have time to get into all of them, but I'll certainly read you this one from Psalm 22, because I think this is profound. And, uh, and, and this is the reason why Jesus needs to be crucified. He says, uh, 
This is the psalm from King David. Now I want you to see David as the guy who, who killed Goliath. Okay, remember this, thousand years prior to Christ, the, this is 1000 BC, David, the legendary king of the Jews, the most beloved of all kings, the one who wrote the Psalter, the Psalms that we sing, the songs we sing in church today, they come, many of them from David's own words. This is that guy. You know a little bit about his life if you've read in First and Second Samuel and you've read uh, the, the accounts uh, in the Old Testament about David. You know some of his life. You know that David was never crucified. We know that David was never pierced through. We know that David certainly ran for his life from King Saul, but he ended up dying in his own bed at, at a ripe old age of, of, of old age. So Psalm 22 doesn't refer to David's life at all. It couldn't. But he wrote this, and he wrote it, and it is attributed to him, and it was well known in the days of Jesus a thousand years later. So however you choose to believe the, the scriptures came to us, the truth is, even if David wasn't the author of this, it was well-known scripture and had been around for hundreds of years by the time Jesus quoted these words on the cross. But look at verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know those words because Jesus said those words on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus claims Psalm 22, okay? He's not actually just crying, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting scripture, a psalm, which makes his cries on the cross even more amazing because he's literally quoting scripture on the cross. But back up, uh, he says, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Goes on uh, to say, uh, verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You, you've heard those words at the cross. The people looking up at Jesus on the cross saying, come down from there. Let God deliver this guy. You know, He said God would deliver him. Let God deliver him. Moving on. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. David never experienced that. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. Dogs mean Gentiles. Gentiles encompass me. When was David ever encompassed by Gentiles? Okay, when he was, when he was escaping for his life and he was down amongst the Philistines, but that was just for a brief moment. And he was certainly not in a terrible way amongst them. He was actually honored by them, and they gave him position in their military. If you know David's story, this doesn't make any sense. Why is David saying these words? Well, because he's speaking prophetically, you understand? David is speaking something out, not about himself, but about the Christ who is to come. And listen to what he says. The dogs encompass me. Gentiles encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. See that? This is written a thousand years before Christ and at least 500 years, maybe 800 years before crucifixion is even a thing. What does it mean they've pierced my hands and feet? What does that even mean to the Jewish people reading that psalm a thousand years before Christ? It has no context. It has no meaning. But on account of Psalm 22 and verse 16... The Messiah, who Psalm 22 is speaking about, is going to have to be 
put to death amongst Gentiles with his hands and feet pierced and his bones out of joint. If Jesus is going to fulfill prophetic word, which, by the way, is the only way to prove to anybody other than witnessing the resurrection for yourself, the only way to prove that Jesus is who he says he is is by showing that he fulfills everything God said he was going to fulfill before he, before he ever got there. Let me, let, me just, let me just give you a little context. Years ago, I think I've told you the story. Years ago, when Tammy and I first came to America, we came with very little. We, had, we, we just had a calling from God in our hearts, and we came here to serve this nation as missionaries to this <laughs> ambitious young folks that we were. It's, it's hard work being missionaries amongst Americans. We came with very little, sold up all we have, gave, gave it away in South Africa, and came to America with $400 in the pocket or and a couple of suitcases, a saxophone, a bag of curry, because we thought they don't have curry in America. And uh, we didn't realize that you can get anything you want here. But we, um, we arrived, and, and, and we had, a, we had a, a bit of a tough go of it at first. But as some of you already know, there came a day when we needed a place to stay. We didn't have a place, and we went looking, knocked on a door of this little German lady, and said, we heard that you might have an apartment, would you let us rent it? And she said, I don't have an apartment but, uh, for rent, but there's one above my garage and you can stay up there uh, for as long as you want free of charge. And we lived in her apartment on her 65 sprawling acres of beautiful multi-million dollar German architecture mansion, beautiful place with fountains and gardens and it was unbelievable. It's like we landed with our bum in the butter, hey, as they say. And. Uh, we lived there for free for a year. She let me drive her beautiful Jeep. It was amazing. I've loved Jeeps ever since. So if you have a Jeep, you're my friend. And, uh, and when we left there, we, we said to her, Ermgard, why were you so kind to us? And she explained, before you came, some two years prior to that, a prophet of God stood up in a meeting and told me, singled me out and told me that a young couple would arrive from a foreign country with child and that I was to become a mother to them. The prophet said within two years, and it was two years to the day when you arrived at my door. What happens when you hear a story like that? What happens to your heart? I know what happened to mine. Everything I had just lived for that whole year suddenly made sense. And everything that I was going through that was difficult, at that time our son had a hole in his heart. He had just been born and he had a hole in his heart and we were con concerned that he was going to die. It was a huge, massive ventricular septal defect. And he was, he was expected to go into heart failure at any minute. And Tammy didn't sleep a wink for the first year of his life. And, uh, and I was back and forth to work anxious every day. And, trying to find out what we could do differently. We didn't have any medical insurance and we were terrified, but it all made sense whenever Ermgard said, the prophet said that you would come. And to the day you came. When the prophet gave the prophetic word, we weren't even married yet. That's how far ahead God went for us. What does that do to you? 
Well, it does something big for me. It builds my faith and it helps me to believe that I'm on the right course. It helps me to believe that God actually really is real, that he's really there. He actually cares about me. And although I can focus you on the scripture, I need you to understand that these things have practical implications in our lives. You see, prophetic words that come to fruition show us that God actually works in this way. God works not just logistically, but he also works prophetically. You understand? If Jesus fulfills the prophetic words about him, then that's a pretty convincing argument for believing that he is who he says he is. You understand? So what does it take for Jesus to be crucified? Think about the odds. First of all, he's got to come at a time when crucifixion is a thing. Secondly, he's got to come at a time where he's got to come to the Jewish people because it's been prophesied that the Messiah will come through the line, through the line of Judah. So he's got to be born into a family from Judah, and he's got to be from the royal line of David. And he's also got to be born in Bethlehem because it says that out of Bethlehem he's going to come. But he's also got to be from, from Nazareth because, as it turns out, as it turns out, you may remember that Jonah, the prophet Jonah, was from Nazareth. He's, he's, he's the one they don't really like to claim as a prophet because he went preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And Jesus needs to be better than Jonah. But Jesus needs to come at a time when the Jewish people are not in command of their own nation, but they need to be in Jerusalem. So it needs to actually be a time when there is a Jewish presence in Jerusalem and they need to have a temple where they are offering sacrifices and so forth. And they need to actually be a proper, a proper representation of, of God's royal people. But they also need to be subjected to the rule of Gentiles because in order for there to be Gentiles around him at his death, the Gentiles have to have the power of, of, of um, what would you call that? Of, of, of uh, capital, punishment. capital punishment. Thank you. Thank you. When in the history of Israel, when was there ever such a time? There was David, then there was Solomon, then there was a broken, divided kingdom, and then they were conquered by a surrounding nation, Gentiles, but they were exiled and the temple was destroyed, so it couldn't happen then. Then when they came back, they rebuilt the temple, but they had their own, they had their own authority there for a while. And then finally, the Romans, after multiple hands, the Romans took them, and, and that's when this became the moment. But now let's just set it up now. Jesus is marching through from Galilee to, to, to Jerusalem, and on a few occasions they want to kill him. Remember, they take him out to the edge of a hill in Nazareth. They want to throw him off the hill, right? And he just turns around and walks through the crowd. What are the odds of you getting out of that kind of a mob experience? What are the odds? Because it says it wasn't his time yet. There were times when they tried to take him in the temple and they would have taken him out and stoned him like they did with Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was stoned to death. James was another Christian martyr and he was beheaded. Okay? 
So how do you get to be crucified? How do you really upset the Jewish religious leaders to the point where they want to kill you, but you don't get killed according to their capital punishment ideas? How, how do you do that? Consider the improbability of the crucifixion. And by the way, did you ever notice that Pilate didn't even want to crucify Jesus? Did you ever notice that he sent him off to Herod to try and get Herod to take responsibility for this? What did Herod do to John the Baptist? Didn't crucify him. He chopped off his head, didn't he? But Herod couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus either. So you've got to set it up so that the Jewish leaders hate and despise you, but the Gentile leaders and the, and the, the, the royalty of, of you know, Herod, that these guys don't want to kill you. And then you've got to be beaten because, you know, you're, you've got to be laid open because the prophetic word has got to speak about your bones being visible. How do you set up this thing? You, you can't. You can't do this. It's not random. And it didn't just happen. It fulfills every prophetic word. Which brings me to the passage of scripture we're supposed to be talking about today, which is the triumphal entry. And let's read it together. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, this is Mark chapter 11, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And he told them, they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late he went out to Bethany with the twelve <laughs> okay this is Jesus and he is absolutely in control some would say he must have set this up in advance he must have had some secret communications and all this whatnot. Well, I don't know, maybe. But I don't think so. I think what's more likely is that Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. And there is nothing that is happening here just by chance. He is being prophetic. He is seeing something that isn't, and it's coming to pass exactly as he sees it and he is showing his disciples that there is that there is intention in every act there's a spontaneity to this story that is v just highly improbable but you might ask well what's the big deal it's just a donkey it's just a colt well no it's not it's not just a donkey it's not just a colt it's fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy listen in, uh, in, 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 the, in the prophetic expectation of Messiah, 
A lot of people were expecting Messiah to come as a conquering hero who would be riding upon a charge horse, okay, some kind of a war horse, and he would be wielding a sword, and he would be bringing death and destruction to his enemies, and he would carry victims in tow, and he would be pillaging, and he would be, and he would be bringing in and ushering in a new era of dominance for the Jewish people. That's what they were expecting. But here is what Jesus does. He comes as the Prince of Peace. Because prophetically, it has been said that he is going to come as the Prince of Peace. He is going to bring the peace of God. And... Uh, And the prophetic word that this is uh, that this is based on, this uh, I'm just going to read it to you. Behold, your king, he's coming. It says. In Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Righteous and having salvation is he. Okay, so prophetic expectation. Messiah has to come, but he has to come to <coughs> Jerusalem. Okay? He can't just come to Nazareth. He can't just come to any other town in, in Israel. He's got to actually come into Jerusalem. But he's also got to be righteous. In other words, there can be nothing about this guy that you could point a finger at and say, mm, he's got some secrets here. This is why we won't vote for him. He's got to be righteous. More, moreover, he's got to come bearing salvation. And Jesus has come bringing salvation. Wasn't that the first message? Repent and believe that you may be saved from the coming wrath of God. He's bearing salvation, not salvation from the nations. He's bringing salvation from the very wrath of God. Look at this. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Everybody knew the Zechariah prophecy. Everybody knew it. Jesus has to come into Jerusalem and he has to come seated on a donkey because the prophetic word says it. In the days of David, riding on a donkey was a royal thing. Prior to David, Samuel rode in, on donkeys and his ju the judges rode on donkeys. These were, these were considered honorable beasts, not so much anymore. After the days of Solomon, Solomon brought a lot of horses and he, he purchased them from Egypt and did everything God told him not to do. And he changed the whole culture of king, kingdom and he made it about conquering and ruling and, 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 and dominance and, and, and prestige. Where David and those before him, uh, leadership was about humility and about righteous judgment. And Jesus has restored and he's going back to the kingdom as it was, not under Solomon, but under David. He's coming as the son of David, not the son of Solomon. So he's being restored as the humble king who rides on a donkey with righteousness and salvation. That's why he needs to come. And that's why the prophecy in Zechariah was so well known. 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But if you think that that's, if you think that's a little too close, that Zechariah was maybe just a few hundred years before Jesus, so Zechariah is like 4th century, 5th century prophet, 5th century BC, maybe we can go back a little bit further. Do you remember what was prophesied over Judah by his father Jacob as Jacob lay dying? Do you remember the prophecy over Judah? Listen to this in Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gotten up. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The, sh the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the, the ruler's staff from between, between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The prophecy over Judah from which we get the very lion of the tribe of Judah. In that prophecy is this donkey. This colt that is to carry him. I want you to try set up something like this, would you? Try set this thing up. Try set up your own death at the hands of Gentiles in a religious Jewish nation. But just prior to your death, you need to be welcomed by an entire city who all shout Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you see how powerful these stories really are. Can you see what's at stake? Can you see that the very identity of the Messiah is being manifested for us? And Jesus leaves it up to, hey, by the way, going down into the city, when you get around this particular corner, you're going to see a donkey there and a little colt. And just take them. And if they stop you, say, the master has need of it, and we'll bring it right back. I want to impress something on you right now. This is, where we're going to, this is where I've been going all day. I want to impress something upon you. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. His disciples haven't got a clue. I want you to take a moment and I want you to let that sink in. Because you are his disciple. And so am I. We haven't got a clue of the magnitude of the thing that we are involved in. Richard, you haven't got a clue. You have no idea how big this thing is. Tian, you've got no idea how big this thing is that you're involved with. You got involved with Jesus and you don't even know what is going on. It is universal. It's on that scale. The magnitude of this thing is so vast. Can I tell you what the end game is? God rules over all. Satan is crushed, destroyed, and cast into the lake of fire. The people of God are gathered from all over the planet 
from every tribe and every tongue. Saints and angels worshiping in one accord in the very throne room of God, eyes open, beholding the majesty of God. We're involved with that. We are involved with a manifestation of the sons and the daughters of God rescued out of our slavery to sin and established once again as rulers under God over his creation. That's what's going on. God is making all things new. That's what's going on. There are times when it seems like Jesus has no idea what he's doing either. But I can tell you, that's not true. And when he tells you to do random stuff, like, hey, by the way, go down to that particular street over there, and when you reach there, you're going to see this person. Follow that person to that place. When you get there, tell them, there's a room there. I want you to prepare a room because there's a whole bunch of us going to have dinner with you tonight. God tells you random stuff like that, you do it. Because there's a logistical piece that you and I don't need to be carrying. There's an element here that we've been carrying that shouldn't be ours to carry. I'm not saying that we should be unprepared. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take the necessary uh, precautions and that we shouldn't make the necessary preparations. But don't dare let preparation and precaution prohibit you from walking out into the very destiny that God has called for you. Because there's a preparation that he's made well before you ever got there. There are hearts that have been prepared that are just waiting for you to get there. They're just waiting for you to show up and be obedient to the thing that God already has established and, and declared. And it's for you and me to step into it by simply learning the blessedness of obedience. You say, well, I'd like to be involved in an adventure. You can. Gather your family together for family altar on a Monday night. You have no idea what kind of adventure the Lord wants to do with that. You have no idea how God may want to take that conversation that you have there and spin it off. And later in the week, your kid is having a conversation with somebody at school. And there's an answer from the Lord in that moment because you've already thought about this as a family. And next thing you know, that other kid's getting saved because of a conversation you had at family altar. You just don't know how God can use the mundane things of our lives, like going and tying up a donkey. By the way, we think about the, 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 the guys who had to go get the donkey. What about the guys who tied it up there in the first place? They didn't have some special word from the Lord that morning. They just went and tied up their donkey. Why they tied it up in the street in front of their house, I don't know. You'd think you'd put it in the back. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not really all that keen on stepping through donkeys, you know, leftovers on the way into somebody's house. You probably put the donkey in the back. But no, it's outside the front. The mundaneness, or maybe the well, we'll do it different today than we did it last week. Who knows what will happen? Could just very well be exactly what the master is looking for. I think there's so much to be learned from this. There's a surrender to God and his will that needs to come. A trust that we can build that God knows what he's doing. There's going to be a lot of disappointment because they're going to see the hosannas. All the disciples are going to be like, this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. James, John, we're going to be on either side of the sky. Let's go. And uh, no, um, no, crucifixion's coming. That's going to be very, very hard. 
But the crucifixion wasn't the end. The crucifixion was just the part that fulfilled a prophetic word. You know, by the way, that when Abraham offered up Isaac, he offered him up on Mount Moriah, laid the wood on his back, made him carry it up the hill at the top, bound him for the sacrifice. And God stayed his hand. Abraham said to his son, God will provide a lamb. There was a ram caught in the thicket and they sacrificed that to God, but the, prop, the promise of the lamb that would come, yeah, that was still there. Mount Moriah is where they built Solomon's temple and subsequently Herod's temple. It's Mount Moriah where Jesus had the wood laid on his back and he carried it up the hill. And there God did not stay his hand. And there the Lamb of God was sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. You understand the beauty of the prophetic fulfillment of God? Everything happens according to God's plan. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. Are you in God's plan? You are if you are in Christ. You've been adopted into the very plan of God simply by faith. You say, well, what if I'm disobedient? What if I miss God's plan? My beautiful friends, there is something for you. It's a gift from God. It's called repentance. Turn around. Say, I'm sorry. And watch and see if God doesn't put you right back in the very heart of that plan again. Let us learn to trust him. Let us learn to carry his burden because it's easy and it's light. You understand? I believe God is going to call us as a church to a higher level. I believe God's going to call us to be aware of prophetic leanings. We've had a good season of logistics. It's time for us to start hearing the voice of the Lord calling us to a prophetic expectation to enter in into some things that maybe are a little uh, I don't know embarrassing sometimes it's embarrassing to trust the Lord because people don't know what you're doing Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for this challenge, this, this challenge to our expectation, this challenge to our understanding, and this invitation to a spontaneity in you that is not spontaneous at all because you've planned everything out. But for us, it seems so random. Help us, Lord, to have the kind of faith that believes you, to take these steps of faith. To take responsibility, to, but to be willing to, to be willing to be irresponsible for you. Not reckless, but to follow you when we don't know where it's going. I pray for each and every one here, Lord. Let our hearts be stirred and let our faith grow. In Jesus' name, amen.